turning your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, Revelation 3 beginning in verse 7. I'm going to go ahead and get going and read the passage and then uh, discuss it together. Revelation 3 beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who, ha- who, who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So guys, as we get into the text tonight, as we look at the city of Philadelphia, is there any context or background that we need to know about the city of Philadelphia that will help us better understand uh, the context and what Jesus is trying to tell them in this letter. One thing I figured out uh, about the city of Philadelphia is that uh, they, I mean, that area had the great uh, earthquake in AD uh, 17, and 12 cities were destroyed. And Philadelphia was one of the one, uh, was one of the, one of them that was destroyed in the earthquake. What's, what's interesting to build off of that, I mean, the city of Philadelphia really dealt with a lot of misfortune in the first century. Not only did they have that earthquake in AD 17, which would be you know, a few decades before this letter was written, but over the span of 25 years in the first century, they had no fewer than, oh, let me pull the, my note back up. They had no fewer than... 15 recorded earthquakes. 15 different earthquakes in the span of 25 years. Uh, And at least one that really destroyed the city. They had to rebuild after that. Also, they were a a city that was known for wine production. They had a lot of vineyards up until AD 92. In AD 92, Emperor Domitian came in and wiped out their vineyards so he could harvest grain instead. Now think about that time frame, A.D. 92. We didn't spend a lot of time on um, uh, the uh, background of the, the book of Revelation as far as it's, uh, it's written, but uh, I'm of the opinion that it was written in the late first century during the reign of Emperor Domitian, probably in the 90s. So probably during the same time period that he's going in there, wiping out their vineyards, and forcing them to plant grain instead for his purposes. Now, you think about this in the context of of the community. They're a a city that has ravaged by earthquakes. In fact, one of the unique things, and I'll bring this up later again, we don't have very many archaeological ruins in Philadelphia. You can go to all these other cities of of Asia Minor and find temples, uh, the pillars left of temples and, and structures in those cities, that we can, we can look at and you can, you can go Google it and find them, but Philadelphia doesn't really have that because they kept getting wiped out by these earthquakes. So they, they're a, a community of misfortune because the earthquakes, because of the, 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 the um, unfortunate uh, existence of, of fault lines or, or whatnot that have caused those, but they're also a, a city of misfortune because an emperor would come in and just tell them, hey, here's, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take away what's made you wealthy and do what I need in your territory. So, so they're, they're a community that has suffered at the hands of nature and man. And it, and it resonates with me because Jesus is going to tell this church of little power. 
Ben has brought this up just about every week, that something from the social standpoint of these communities is reflected in the congregational standpoint, of the, in the life of the church. This is a community that has little power because of natural disasters, because of uh, the rulings of emperors. And this church reflects the same thing. They're going to have little power as well. So I think that background of misfortune helps us understand, helps, gives us an idea uh, of what we can think about with this church that's going to be told they have little power. You know, it's interesting about that is that, yes, Philadelphia had all, this, all these earthquakes and all, all of these hardships, but they also were a very prosperous city, which is kind of what we've been hitting at, too. They had all these difficult things going on for them, but because of where they were at and because of the route in which they sat on, they were, they were a city with a lot of means, and so they could build back every time. Not every city can build back from being completely destroyed four or five times after a big earthquake, but Philadelphia could because of where they were located. They were located at this pretty much this crucial point on the eastern route between Europe and Asia. And so a lot of good and trades are coming through, so a lot of money is being made there. And so what's interesting about that is not only are they building back every time after they're being wrecked out from an earthquake, but the way in which they're building back, they were pretty much the city, the, the flagship city to evangelize the Hellenistic culture. They wanted to model themselves after the, the, the entire Greek culture, and they were going to be the image to the east. When you come westward, when you're coming from Asia to Europe, this is what you are experiencing. This is the nation, this is the, the culture, the architecture, the way of life. They wanted to be the city that showed the east what Hellenism was like, what Greek way of life, Greek culture, Greek um, social life is like, everything. And so because of that, they got a nickname of Little Athens sometimes. A lot of people would call them Little Athens because they would build themselves after the city of Athens, they would model their temples, they would model their way of life after that, so that people coming through could, be, could, could uh, see that. And so that's going to come back into play, I feel like, in the text tonight, as this was a city really built on evangelistic purposes, not for Christ, but evangelistic in the way of Greek life. So I thought that was pretty interesting. A couple more things I'll add is when you have a city that has been through such uh, significant natural disaster, I believe a city that has been through many of those, like you were mentioning, Kyle, I think that sticks with the inhabitants of that city for years and years. And stories and legends are told through generation and generation, and constantly there is a fear of natural disaster. I remember in 2011, Jay and I from Alabama, we know uh, the tornadoes that came through there. We've referenced that a few times uh, in the midst of a roundtable study, but I remember never taking those tornado sirens for granted ever again after April 27, 2011, because I, it immediately brought me back to the fear that I had that day. And I think when you have such a cataclysmic earthquake in AD 17 and throughout the, the first few uh, decades of, of the uh, AD, I mean, at the first few decades, they were having significant earthquakes, and so they were constantly fearful and con constantly worried. I, I read that many of, of the citizens of, of Philadelphia, any time there was a tremor, uh, it would send the whole city into a frenzy, and they, people would be running outside of their homes and trying to evade the city, uh, or not e evade, trying to evade the city and trying to get out of there. And um, I think that plays into what it meant to be a citizen of Philadelphia is, is, is a constant fear of the unknown, a constant fear and a constant worry. And these people had been through so much and had to rally together. Um, one of the other things that I, I read in my studies, many of us obviously know uh, what the word or the name Philadelphia means. Um, I'm not one to look at Greek and combine words and make something out of something that's not actually there because I just don't like to do that. That's not the original language. That's making something up, in my opinion. But when you look at this word, Philadelphia, it is one of those circumstances and one of those times where it is a combined word where you can get phile, which is adjective or noun form, don't ask me, of the word love. Phileo is the verb form, but phile is the example of love there, and then Adelphos is the word for brother. So love of a brother, or brotherly love, 
we know that uh, Philadelphia in America is known as the city of brotherly love, and that's because the name Philadelphia means that exact phrase, brotherly love or love of a brother. And the only other thing I saw was uh, the city of Philadelphia was created and, and was uh, instituted and whatever because of the king of Pergamum. His name was Attalus uh, II. Attalus II uh, expanded Pergamum. He built a whole new city and named it Philadelphia, and that's because Attalus loved his older brother so much that he gained the nickname Philadelphus, which is that word Philadelphia, the love of a brother. He loved his brother so much that that was his nickname. He was King Attalus II Philadelphus. And so that history, that background going into the very foundation of this society, this was a city that had to have brotherly love. This was a city that depended on one another to get through all of these disasters and all these challenges and all these times that they lost everything. And so it's amazing to look at the context of that as we look at this uh, passage tonight. Let's look at verse two or, or verse 7 as we look at how Jesus describes himself. He says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Guys, this is one of the longest descriptions of any letter that Jesus gives of himself. Uh, to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, what's significant about the way he describes himself here? The first thing I picked up on is that comment, he is holy and he is true. And I think that, to me, what, it, what I kind of got from this is that calls back from this, uh, this identity of Philadelphia, this copy of Athens. And so the idea behind he is true is more of it. he is an authentic. He is no copy of anything. He is the real deal. He is the true and genuine son of God. And he calls back on this in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. And that's what he's done in every single letter. It's been a call back to that first vision that John sees Christ in. And so each or first vision that Christ shows himself in chapter 1 verses, I believe, uh, 17 through 20. And so he calls back on that to show his authenticity, his genuine uh, power and authority. And then you've got this interesting comment at the bottom of verse 7, right? He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. And I'm, and I'm sure all of us will mention this, but this is a callback from a, a prophecy uh, or a passage in Isaiah chapter 20, verses, uh, chapter 22, verses 20 through 23, when there's a leader in Israel at this point who said it laid the key of David on his shoulder, saying that this guy at this moment, at that time in Israel's history, had the keys to the kingdom. He had the keys to that area, and so he was in charge. And so I think this is what Christ is calling here. Not only is he true, he's authentic to be. He has the keys to the kingdom. Just like right now, if you have the keys to someone's car, someone gives you the keys to their house while they're on vacation, you have that domain, you have the power, you, know, you have that authority over that place while someone is gone or whatever it may be. So I think, what, what I think Christ is calling out here in verse 7 when he says, who has the key of David mean he has the kingdom of David. He has the authority of David. What he opens will remain open, and what he shuts will remain shut. He has complete control over that. And then we're going to get into a discussion a little bit, a little bit later of what door he opens. So I think this is, a, this is a call of Christ using not only his authenticity, but also of his control of the, of the kingdom at this moment. The, the thing that stood out to me in, in this description of Jesus is how... how it depicts him as in control, as, uh, as Jay used the term power. He has the power. He has the authority. He has the control. And I, I think that's significant, speaking to a congregation that he ha he's going to say has little power. And if you look at the whole uh, letter to this church of Philadelphia, there's no criticism of Philadelphia. There, there's no um, warning of pending danger for Philadelphia. The whole letter is actually not about the Church of Philadelphia. It's about Christ. The, the whole letter of Philadelphia emphasizes Christ's strength rather than the congregation's strength. So the, the, the letter will say that Jesus is the one who possesses the key of David, that Jesus is the one who opens doors that uh, no one will shut, that Christ uh, will punish the synagogue of Satan in verse 9, that Christ will keep this congregation from the hour of trial in verse 10, that, that Christ is coming soon in verse 11, that Christ will make them a pillar in the temple of God and will write on them the name of God in verse 12. Everything in this letter is actually about Christ. And I think it's 
emphasizing that he's the one who has the power, even though this congregation itself has little power. I, I think it's a confidence-building description of the one whom they serve. That's what stood out to me about the description. I agree that uh, it is about uh, Christ who has the authority and uh, power, but uh, there is a little uh, specific aspect of Christ by calling himself as holy and true. Uh, if you look at uh, chapter 6, verse 10, Revelation, chapter 6, verse 10, uh, you know, fr from verse 9, if we read, uh, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the under the altar the source of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out, the souls uh, slain, souls cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the holy and true uh, the description uh, reminds us of the position of Christ as the judge. And the people who are, were being in danger, were being in persecution in, the, in Philadelphia, probably was waiting, were waiting for the judgment of vindication of the Lord, of, of Jesus Christ. So, uh, Christ appeared, I mean, Christ wrote a letter, and in the letter he said, he described himself as holy and true. And one other thing uh, that Christ himself, uh, he described himself as the one who had the key of King David. Uh, we need to, you know, look at the, a little bit of the context of Isaiah chapter 22. Actually, the, um, you know, Isaiah, got the word from God that um, the country Syria, I mean, will take over the, uh, Judah. And so Isaiah was so urgent and uh, he told to the king, I think he, he is uh, Hilkiah, Hilkiah, Hezekiah. Hezekiah. But he took advice from Shebna, his steward, and, and uh, he didn't take Isaiah's advice. So God replaced Hezekiah with his son, with the Eliakim, who will listen to God. Hezekiah didn't listen to God, didn't listen to uh, Isaiah, but El Eliakim listened to Isaiah, in other words, listened to God. So God gave him the king, key of David, the key of the king of David. In other words, God gave Eliakim the key to protect his people, the key to the, to the kind of shelter or, you know, what, closet or whatever, <laughs> you know, that people can go in and be safe. He gave the key to, king, to the king Eliakim. And so I think, in my view, uh, Jesus is describing him that he has the key. I have the key to the safe place. And in verse 8, he says that, you know, I said, he said, you know, I know, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. So he has, he has the open door and he has the key. So it is before you. You are welcome to come in. So I think that is what Jesus is trying to say. I love the, the idea of him establishing himself as he who is holy and he who is true. Kind of what we're all saying, but the idea of holiness is Jesus is saying, I am the one who will snuff out any sin. I am the one who will not tolerate any evil doing. I am the one who cannot be in the presence of those things. I am holy, I am true. He, com he compares his truthfulness to verse 9 to those who are going around not in the truth, to those who are lying and saying they are, the, uh, are Jews and they are not. He, he is saying, I am the true one. When, when Jesus says, I am the truth, you know, John 14 and verse 6, 
Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is saying, I am the truth. I am the embodiment of the truth. All these other people that are telling you otherwise are full of lies, full of deceit, full of what he calls the synagogue of Satan, verse 9. And so when he says that I am the truth, he's, he's trying to tell the church in Philadelphia, when it comes to me gaining followers and gaining uh, people obeying my voice, I don't need to come up with stuff. I don't need to lie. I don't need to say things and, and, and pervert things and twist things to get people to follow me because all i got to do is tell the truth, the good news of what I have done. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power unto salvation to all those who believe, Romans 1 and verse 16. And so when Jesus says, I am the truth, he's trying to say all these other people are having to lie. All these other people are having to come up with stuff and having to twist and pervert and distort what I have said in order to gain followers. But when it comes to me, I am the truth. I don't have to do that. People will follow me and will heed my voice because of my good news. I don't need to embellish anything. And so when I, when, when I look at this, I, I think of him being holy, I think of him being true, I think of him holding this key, and it all comes down to me, to kind of what we're all saying, is Jesus has the authority. Every single week we've looked at the description of Jesus, and almost always it comes down to Jesus being the one with the authority. Matthew 28, all authority has been given unto me in heaven all, and heaven and on earth. When he says, in heaven and on earth, he is saying, in heaven I have the authority to open the door, I have the authority to shut the door, I have the authority because I am holy and I am true. It's really an amazing description he gives of himself, and that kind of goes right into what we're talking about. Mingu, with referencing in verse 8, he says, I know your works, See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. So the question I have for us tonight is, what does this open door that no one can shut, what does that mean for the Christian today? Um, I think, this, I think uh, this is also related to what, we, uh, what the description does in verse 7, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one, uh, no one opens. In other words, Jesus is not only saying that I have the authority, but he is saying that, you know, I am the one who will judge who will enter the door and who will not. Jesus has the authority to judge who will enter the door and who will not. He doesn't, only, uh, he doesn't have authority not only to about the door, but also to choose who will enter the door. So, and, and if I can go into the door, and nobody can shut the door, because Jesus has the, has the full authority. Only Jesus has the authority. I don't have to trust anybody else. It's enough to rely on Jesus, because Jesus has the authority, the full authority, to, you know, let me in to the door. You know, possibly the door that he's referencing in verse 8 is the same door that's referenced in 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 2, and Colossians 4, this open door evangelism, an opportunity where the door has been opened to reach out to somebody. And so the, the door that Christ is referencing in, here in chapter 3 and verse 8 could be that opportunity. I have opened a door to this city. I have opened this opportunity. You are, you are located in this, this middle point between these two cultures. You are located in a city that's founded on sharing beliefs and, and, and showcasing um, ways of life. And so I've opened this door for you, and no one else can shut that. And I, and I get that idea that no one else can, because to me this passage reminds me of Romans 8 when it goes through the, the last three verses of you know, neither death nor life or principalities, a huge list of things that cannot separate you from the love of Christ, right? And we always, we've always heard lessons on that. Like, nothing else can separate us from the love of Christ, but who can separate us from the love of Christ? We can, right? We still have that free will to walk away from that. And I think Christ is hitting at the same idea here in Revelation chapter 3. No one, nothing else, no one else can shut that door. No earthquake, 
no other power, no other country, no other, the synagogue of Satan, no one else can shut this door of evangelism I'm offering you, but you can walk away from it. I've opened this door for you, but you don't have to walk through it. And so that made me think about the certain doors that maybe Christ or God has opened in my life when it comes to evangelism. I think about different times in my life when it comes to open doors in my family. I've got members of my family that aren't members of the church, and so that door has been opened for me in the times I've walked by that door. I've got people that, necessarily not, 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 not the people I work with, right? Those people, I think they're good. Um, but when I was a bus driver in Tuscaloosa, that was the first time I'd really had a job in a secular work where, because my, my, my only other job experience was my Nana in a beauty shop, so she was good too. But this one opportunity in my life where I was a bus driver, you know, it was just, there was like 80 workers I went, I was around every single day. And it was kind of the first time where I felt like that door had just been blown open. You know, it's like, okay, I've got this. There's a break room. They're always sitting around drinking coffee afterwards. Um, we're drinking water in the afternoon, you know. And so it's, an, it's a door that's been open. And I think about our students here going to middle school and high school and, and all of us who go to jobs tomorrow and stuff like that. That's a door that's been opened. And no one else can shut it. Your boss may try to. Your teacher may try. There might be a lot of external things that say, no, that door shut to talking to that person or standing your faith in that way. But no one can shut the door that God has opened of evangelism in our lives. But we can walk away from it. And Satan wants to trick us into coming up with the most clever ways. Well, it's not the right time. I, I may stick out. Or this isn't the time. This isn't the place. But that door has been opened. No one else can shut it. We just need to make sure that we don't walk by it, that we walk through it. When I think about the open door, um, it's exactly what you're saying, Jay, of this idea of the opportunities that Jesus has set before us. What are we doing with it? And it's this open door aspect, this idea. My grandfather has done mission work uh, 53, 54, 55 years and he named his mission work the Open Door Ministry after this passage. God, Jesus, setting before us an open door, and no one can shut it. It's the idea of this open door has been placed before us. Are we going to walk through it? Look, look at what he says. I, who is I? Jesus Christ, the Son of God who is holy, who is true, who holds the key of David, I have set before you an open door. Imagine if Jesus said that to you. He is saying it to you. He's saying, Wayne, I have set before you an open door. No one can shut it. Is that not powerful? Jesus Christ, the one who holds all the authority in all the earth, has set before every single one of us an open door. The idea of an open door is all of the endless possibilities that lie on the other side of that doorway. All the possibilities and all the opportunity that's ahead of us if we will just walk through the door. If we will take the advantage of the opportunity that has been set before us instead of just looking at the door. Looking at this open door and saying, that you know, could be great over there. Could be great. Could cause me to go out of my comfort zone, though. Could be a little bit more work than I bargained for. Uh, somebody else will walk through it. Unfortunately, there are so many different congregations and so many different temptations, even for elderships, to look at open doors that are before them and say, this is going to cause too much work. This is going to cause too much uh, uh, angst. This is going to cause too much resources. It's just, it's just not worth it. When Jesus is the one saying, I open the door. And so when I look at the, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, this this. Uh, this this thought of an open door that has been set before us that no one can shut it is it's so powerful. It's one of the most powerful things in all the letters, if you ask me. Because this is an opportunity that Jesus has placed before every single one of us, and yet every single one of us refuse to walk through the doors He opens from time to time. Every single one of us make the, the conscious decision not 
to proceed through the door that Jesus has opened for every single one of us. And the question I have is, what is Jesus going to say one day? To us, to each and every one of us, when He says, I opened that door for you. I gave you all the access you could possibly need. I prepared the way. I, 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 I paved the road. did everything I could, and you didn't walk through the door. All you had to do was walk through it. I did everything else. Think of what it took for Jesus to open that door. He had to conquer death. He had to conquer sin. He had to conquer the devil. He had to conquer all these different things to get authority. To be able to say, I have given, I've been given all authority on heaven and on earth. He had to go through all of that to open that door that we refuse to walk through. And so the, to the church in Philadelphia, he is saying, I have set before you this open door. All these great opportunities. All you've got to do is walk through them. And if you do, this is what I'll do for you. And so as we look at what's coming next in the text... In verses 9 through 11, he says all these different things that come through being, having a little strength, keeping his word, and not denying his name. If you look at verse 8, for you have little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Verses 9 through 11, he kind of talks about what you will receive because of that. What does he tell the Philadelphian church that they will receive for doing those three things? I think I am reading a little bit differently um, from how Ben and Jay uh, read this text. Um, you know, I agree with that uh, aspect that the open door can mean the opportunity for us to evangelize people. But still, I am reading like um, that Jesus is talking about the people. I mean, uh, Jesus is giving consolation, encouragement, and and, and, you know, giving his love so that the hearers of these words can be, you know, encouraged. Because they are doing the word of God. They are sticking to the hold, uh, sticking to the truth of God. But they had little power. They don't have, have much power. And also, they are under persecution. There are a lot of Jews who are not true Jews. The, the term Jews reminds me of a very interesting thing. They are in the kingdom of God, but they are not of the kingdom of God. And they are around the people who are truly of the kingdom of God. And imagine what would the situation of the people who are really of the kingdom of God, surrounded by the people who are in the kingdom of God, but not of the kingdom of God. It's a persecution. They try to do what they have to do according to the word of God, word of God according to the will of God, but they face a lot of affliction, I mean, a lot of objections and rejections and, you know, backbitings and everything. But Jesus is saying that, I know your work. I have an open door before you, brothers and sisters, or, you know, my children. Be encouraged. I know you. I know what you're doing. So he says in verse 12, I don't know, uh, yeah, verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have what you are doing right, so that no one may seize your crown. I think um, this is the way that I'm reading this text, but I also agree with what you know, uh, Jen and Ben and Jay read the text. So when it comes to what, he's, what, what Jesus is promising uh, these individuals, I see, uh, I see three things. I see one... He's promising that those who have uh, harmed them or those who have persecuted them will, uh, will face judgment. 
two, he promises them that I'm going to be with you. I will protect you. And though he's not necessarily promising uh, physical protection for all of us, he does, he does promise to be with us in all situations. And he's promising that essentially here for these, these Christians too, though he specifically promises this group of Christians who have the little power that he would protect them. And the third thing he's promising them is, I'm coming back. I, I, I will return, so th- this isn't forever, and I, and I will return. He's essentially promising judgment on, on their opposition. He's promising uh, protection uh, for them in the face of persecution, and he's promising his return. And essentially, it's the same promise he offers every Christian, that he's offering us, that, that the enemies of the kingdom of God will be judged and will be punished. That's actually the storyline of the book of Revelation. He's promising that he will be, be with us, and to the end he will be with us. And he promises that he's coming back for us. The same promises that, that he offers every Christian are reiterated to some degree here to the church of Philadelphia. I love the... The idea of having this little strength, this little power, other translation says, and it takes me to the passage where Jesus says, "The faith of a mustard seed." If you just have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. It's this idea that all God asks of us is just a little strength. If you're just would you use your little strength that I have given you? What is Ephesians three and verse twenty? to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in me. Is, 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 it, is it God or, or Jesus and power that works in them? No, according to the power that works in us. Individual Christians, this power, if you will use that power that works in you, you God will be able to do exceedingly and abundantly above everything you ever imagined. That's the idea I get here in this passage. This idea that God would take care of of these enemies of the church in verse 9 probably seemed unfeasible to them. There's no way that these enemies that have been here this long persecuting us and lying to us and drawing people away from the church, there's no way that they'll ever be taken care of, Jesus says, I'm taking care of them. There's no way that all this persecution, all these things I'm persevering, the hour of trial and, and... all these different things he says in these verses, there's no way it's going to get taken care of, and here Jesus says, it's going to happen. If you just have this little bit of strength, if you don't deny my name, if you hold fast to the truth and keep my word, then I will make it happen. God can do amazing things with just the littlest bit of faith. If each of us would just have that faith that could move a mountain, the faith of a mustard seed, God can do amazing things through each one of our lives. Verse 12, we need to move on. As we look at verse 12, ultimately culminates in like the greatest promise <clears throat> verse in any of these letters, if you ask me. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. What are your thoughts on verse 12, and what kind of comfort do you think this brought the Philadelphian church, and what comfort should it bring us tonight? I love that he uses the word pillar to start off with. There's three actions there. I'll make you a pillar. You won't have to go out anymore, and I will give you the name of God. And the first action is I will make you like a pillar. You know, we've been referencing this multiple times tonight, but in the city of Philadelphia, there's just numerous earthquakes, you know, almost multiple ones every decade, right? And still today, when you go to these cities, what are the, what are the only things still standing from this era? The pillars. The pillars of those temp- temples, right? So you can imagine a Philadelphian uh, citizen walking through the streets, the temples that had cracked, the temples that had fallen, the things that always remained were the pillars. And so the fact that Christ is saying, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. 
saying, I will make you the strongest part. I will make you, I will give you the strength to stand when the earth shakes around you. And what an amazing promise that is to us today, that when, God, when Christ looks at us, he says, I will make you like a pillar. When the world shakes, when your when circumstances change, whatever, it, whatever happens underneath you, I have built you and you are like a pillar. And if things fall around you, you're fine because you will stay remained. And the second thing he says is that he will not go out. Verse 12, I will make him a pillar and temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And you referenced this earlier in, this, in the fact that a lot of times if there is even a tremble in the city of Philadelphia, all the citizens would run out of homes, run out of the temples, run out of anywhere they were to get out and to find cover. So again, we're, we're hitting the cultural reference of these, city, of these citizens that he's speaking to. And he's saying, you don't have to run anymore. You're a pillar. When the earth shakes, when the earthquakes around you, there's no more going out. And then when you feel safe coming back in, God, Christ is saying, I will, make, I will give you strength. I will provide you security. And then what's the third thing he gives them? I will put on the name of God on you. We see a reference of this in 2 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 18, this kind of long-standing tradition of, of, of inscribing names onto pillars. Uh, King Absalom didn't have a, a son at that moment, and so he put his, his own name on a pillar. And the writer of Samuel, sa Samuel says that, and to this day it still stands. It, was, it, was a st it stood as a monument, as a reminder of a, of a strong citizen or someone that was a big, person, a big person of that temple or whatever it may be. And Christ says, I will give you strength, I will provide you security, and I will write my name on you. And you, will, you will stand to show others who made you strong. You, you will stand. You will be the image bearer, a lot of the New Testament writer, writers say. You will put on my name. And so what an amazing blessing. In the midst of a city that's constantly being rebuilt, changed, shaped, and brought back down, Christ is saying, you're going to be strong. You're going to be secure. And I've written my name on you so that other people can see where that strength comes from. I love the, the way he says... He shall go out no more. Like you were mentioning, so many of us look forward to heaven because it is a place where we can finally rest. It's a place where we can finally lay all of our burdens aside and all of the trials of life and all of the pain and all of the sorrow and all, all, all of the loss and the death and the illness and uh, financial woes and, and stress and anxiety of life. And we can stop and never have to go out anymore. We can finally be in a place where we can rest from all of our labor. Finally be at a place where we don't have to go out the next day and do it all over again. I don't know how many times I feel at the end of the day just beaten with a bat whether it be physically or mentally or emotionally or whatever the case might be, spiritually, and I have to get up the next day and do it all over again. Heaven is a place where I don't have to do it again over again the next day. All i got to do over again is worship the Lord. Forever and ever. I love the thought of He shall go out no more. Because there is nowhere to go except to the arms of the Lord when we make it there. And from verse 10, I think uh, there is an interesting idea, you know, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial. The hour of trial is coming. It's not come yet. But, but they endured the persecution. There's something you know, uh, some afflictions and uh, hardships. But the hour of trial is coming. And imagine the hour of trial is much, much difficult to endure. But in that hour of trial, Jesus promised that I will keep you. And also, not only that, Jesus promises them who endure the current uh, persecution or sufferings, he says that I will make you a pillar in the temple of God. In other words, you will protect a lot of other people because you are proved to be able to be a pillar.
pillar of the temple of God. So in the hour of trial, you will protect a lot of people because you passed the test, in other words. You passed the current pass, the sufferings and persecutions for righteousness' sake. And that's a great idea. You know, we may think that the perse current persecution, current suffering is great. Oh, I can endure. I can wait for the Lord to help me. But the true, most difficult hour of trial is coming. And if we pass our current sufferings and persecutions, the world will be made the pillar in the temple of God and we'll be able to protect and help a lot of brothers and sisters. That will be a great glory of a person. What's the most important thing that the Buford Church of Christ can take away from the letter Jesus writes to the church in Philadelphia? I think it's faithfulness. Because when Jesus repeats what he knows about this congregation, it's that they have little power, and we don't know specifically what that's a reference to. I mean, it, it could be their, the size of the congregation. It, it could be a... a uh, a reference to them not having the resources and skill sets that, that other churches have. It, it, it might be uh, a reference to their, their uh, financial status. It might be a, a reference to their social status. We, we really don't know specifically what their little power is. But he follows that up by immediately saying, uh, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. They have little power, but they have big faith. And for me, when I look at the Church of Philadelphia, they're the one church of all these seven that is not criticized for anything and don't have any pending uh, difficult situations to worry about. You can go back to Smyrna. They weren't criticized for anything. I think it's Smyrna. Hopefully I got my right S town there. But they weren't criticized for anything, but they had... a. Uh, they had, to, oh, they had to anticipate a very difficult persecution. Philadelphia, no criticisms, nothing that needs to change, no warnings of pending doom and gloom. And I think it's all because what Jesus saw there may have been little power, but big faith, because they were just faithful. It's easy for us as a congregation to think we have big power. We're decently sized congregation in comparison to the average across the United States. We have, uh, you don't ever hear our elders get up here and say, hey, hey, we're not making budget, you better give more. Because we have a, we have a, a strong giving congregation. We, ha we, we, we are not a congregation that would conclude that we have little power. So it's easy for us to claim big power and when you have big power, it's easy for you to have littler faith. And so the takeaway for me is, no matter how much power you have in the, in the realm of membership, uh, talent, resources, that sort of thing, don't ever forget that what really matters is your faithfulness to the Lord. Because that's what Philadelphia is praised for, and that's why Philadelphia is the congregation who receives all these beautiful promises from the Lord. One thing I'm taking away real quick is the fact that less than two weeks ago we had 128 visitors on our property. We had 70, over 70 people show up because of a door knocking campaign. God has opened a door to our community and it's all thanks to Him and all praise to Him and I just pray that we'll take advantage of that and that we won't shrink away from that. We've got a lot of work, we've got our foot in the door by just getting them here. We've got a lot of work ahead of us to take advantage of that. I just hope that we won't walk by it. Go and do ministry has opened a big door, thanks to God. I would like to uh, speak to those who are like pillars of this congregation, the temple of God. Take courage. Take heart. You are not alone. We are all together. Even though there are some people who may be indifferent of the works here, but we are still here to work together. There are a lot of brothers and sisters who put their 
you know, energy, time, and effort, and everything to make the, what God wants us to do happen in this congregation. I'm, I'm so honored to be here working with you. So let's take heart. The question we'll close with is, what are you doing with the doors that God and Jesus have opened for you in your life? Let's close in a word of prayer. Our dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time of, of singing praises to you, coming before your throne in prayer and opening up your word and learning from it, and learning from uh, the, the amazing letter that you wrote to the church in Philadelphia that rings true today and still speaks to us at the Beaufort Church of Christ thousands of years later. Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given us that is living, that's active, that's sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces into each of us, into our spirits, into our souls. And I pray that it will take root and will reap uh, fruit in each one of us as we go out and live each day of our lives. That we will go out as a congregation, as brothers and sisters in Christ who look for the doors that you have placed before us and walk through them and have the faith to walk through each one of them and take advantage of the opportunities that you have placed before each one of us. Have the faith that calls us to action in taking, taking advantage of everything you've done for us, Lord. Taking the steps, taking the courage that we need to go through those opportunities and make the best of them, each and every one, each and every time. You've done so much to open those doors for each of, each of us. You've opened up the door of salvation and the, the door of eternal life and the door of every spiritual blessing we could possibly imagine, Lord. I pray that we will give you the glory and try every single day to pay you back for the things that you have done that we never will be able to. Thank you so much for Jesus who is holy and is true and holds that key and, and allows us to enter the throne room of God in this prayer tonight. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.